I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Welcome, everyone. I wanted to start my very first podcast episode by saying thank you so much for tuning in. You have no idea what this means to me. I also want to say that one of the greatest gifts I've acquired as a recovered person is the ability to be okay when things get messy. As I started listening back to the first few episodes, I thought to myself, okay, messy. Hmm little less messy, Hmm. even less messy. And that's my first recovery bite to listeners. It's okay if things are messy. And in recovery for a little while, they will be. Don't give up. You will hear in the first few podcasts, little things like phones pinging, computers ponging, words that I now realize I say over and over again. It's okay. This is part of the journey. Things get messy, and I'm inviting you all in unapologetically to my mess. Thank you so much, and enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me uh, on my very, very first episode of Recovery Bites real talk with recovered professionals. I have been dreaming about this and I am so excited to start this podcast. Not only start the podcast series, but start with my first guest who is incredibly special to me. So again, thank you all for showing up. Thank you for listening. It's our first one. I also want to say, I hope you're all safe. We're in the midst of COVID-19. So Hopefully, this is something that, you know, will bring people together so they can listen together and talk about it and start asking questions and being curious. So I'm so glad you're all here. So I definitely want to say thank you so much to my first guest, Carolyn Costin. I am thrilled to have you on the show today. That's great. I'm excited to be your first guest. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I told Carolyn, for those of you who don't know, so I have, I've had the fortune of knowing Carolyn for 15, maybe 20 years. When I started this podcast series, I called her and I said, I'm starting a podcast. It's all about recovered healers. And you, I would love for you to be absolutely my first guest. So I just, again, want to say thank you very, very much. You are welcome. Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Tell us about the Carolyn Costin Institute. Tell us all the things you've done in the past or some of the things, because it's quite quite a few. <laughs> and then we'll get a little bit more into the podcast interview. 
Okay, well, where do you want me to start? Which one of those questions? And before we, even, before we really get into this, I want to give you a, a little technology tip because I've done this longer than you. You're awesome. You're shading yourself when you put your hand up over your head. You are awesome. <laughs> so I am still being taught by my teacher. <laughs> and that is that I am forever grateful for. So, but where do you want to start? You asked a lot of questions in a row there. Uh, I want you to start with what you're doing right now, because I think you're doing a lot of great things. Oh, okay. Well, um, since I sold Montanito, uh, you know, I was looking for, well, first I, w I just took a big deep breath in and was yeah. kind of looking around at the landscape and it started coming to me in different ways um, that there's a gap in the field and this gap is that we don't have what the 12-step program has had for years now which is like um uh coaches sober coaches so yep. there's life coaches and sober coaches and business coaches but there really was no eating disorder coaches i mean there was a few people hanging up their shingles but nobody was training them and you know it's very difficult to treat eating disorders and even to be a coach and i think the, the field was kind of afraid of it. So I thought, you know, and you know, having worked with me alongside of me for a long time, that I sort of think that being an eating disorder therapist or dietitian, part of that job is kind of being a coach, like yep. doing more direct stuff with the food and all that. But you can't do everything. You can't, you know, have a meal with your clients uh, and every client all day long. And you can't go to their house and cook the food and um, anyway, or go grocery shopping with them all the time. So I, I, I um, started the Carolyn Costin Institute where I'm training and supervising and certifying, certifying eating disorder coaches. And it's been great. I mean, it's been really, I didn't know how it was going to go. I think that having the reputation I have, you know, having run Montanito and have all my books out, I think people... I started getting responses. People were saying, well, if you're teaching the coaches, then I'm more open to it. And a lot of people are wanting coaches now. And yeah. whether it's a coach to help, um, and, and a lot of them are recovered, which sort of fits in with this show. Yep. A lot of people, I would say about 95% of the coaches are recovered. They aren't all recovered, but, but a high percentage are. And they have to be recovered for at least two years. And um, yeah, it's been really great. Yeah. Really, really great. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to throw you a little curveball. I'm actually going to take a step back and say, I don't even know if it's important and I hope it's okay to say that. I don't want to hear the story about your eating disorder. We've heard so many stories about eating disorders and that's not what this podcast is about. As, as soon as you started talking, I thought, nope, we don't need that. So... I want to talk to you about you being recovered, working with recovered clinicians and dietitians, having recovery coaches that are recovered. Tell me why you think that's so important. Well, you know, it's so interesting because when I had my eating disorder, I'll, I'll say this about it. It was so long ago, over 40 years ago. Um, I didn't even know that recovered was a thing. I didn't know, I didn't even know recovering, recovered. Yeah. It's just that 
I did get better. I did feel like it's, it's, it's past me now. I'm not dealing with it anymore. And so when I became a therapist and started treating people, I started treating them. Well, I got over this thing that I had in the past. You can get over it too. And I didn't even question it. It was only later that I ran into this idea, you know, the 12-step program and the idea of always being recovering that I sort of stood up. And about 30 years ago, I gave, no, longer, 35 years ago, gave this talk at, at IADEP. God, that was a long time ago. Right. <laughs> about, about recovered versus recovering. And I think the reason it's so critically important is that I think that people who are suffering need to see that you are not going to have to manage your illness for the rest of your life, that you actually can get to a point where it's gone. It's a thing of the past. And I, and, and when I first started doing this, I was sort of the unique one out there saying it, but now, you know, there's a lot of recovered people. There's a lot of people doing it. I, I feel like, all right now, it, it's coming to its own. And I think the fact that using them as coaches there's a way that people get concerned about it, like how do we know you're really recovered and all that, but but the reality is that was happening anyway. Yeah. I mean, people just weren't talking about it. So when when treatment centers said to me things like, "Oh, we don't we don't we don't hire recovered people," my response was, "How do you know?" I was just going to say, <laughs> "How do Nothing. you know?" Not that because you know. You of. and I both know people who worked in clinics yep. who recovered but weren't allowed to say it. Yep. Yep. So I think it's so critical, not because I think if you're recovered, you're a way better therapist. I, you know, we had a lot of great therapists at Montanito who, who weren't recovered. But I also think that patients have to be exposed to people who are recovered. And it just makes sense. If you were yeah. a doctor treating cancer and you never had any examples of people who had totally gotten over it, it would be yeah. a weird thing. Or if you yeah. did that from people, it would be a weird thing. So to me, it is, it's critical and it, it, it makes total sense to me. And it's super important that we expose patients to people who are recovered, that we use them as role models and we get them in the trenches to do things like eat in a restaurant, go to a gym, go shopping, set up your, you know, when someone leaves treatment for chemical dependency, a sober coach goes to their house, gets rid of all the drugs they have in their house helps them set things up and start their new life. We don't have that for eating disorders. And you can go into someone's house, maybe they still have laxatives around. Yep. Maybe they haven't they don't have food in the house or they haven't cooked for themselves for so long. Let's say they have anorexia and they were they weren't cooking for themselves. So I think coaches are necessary and I think it's going to be a game changer. I, I, I really do. I absolutely agree with that because there's so much happening in life while people are trying to recover from an eating disorder and life often gets in the way and it's our job to teach them that you still need to feed yourself. Life happens and you still need to feed yourself. Life happens and you can't purge your food or you can't binge. You have to actually get through life. And I'm so sorry for those of you, obviously none of you can see this right now because this is a podcast, but I just saw Carolyn's dog, Bodie, just come yeah. into the frame. And that's oh. amazing. <laughs> so I apologize to everybody out there, but I haven't seen Bodie in many years. So that was Bodie. that was a special little treat for He's me. He's looking at me because he he it's right around now that he gets fed. <laughs> 
Well, I, I did see, I do appreciate what you sent me that Bodhi is actually turning into a recovery coach as well, oh, yeah. right. which is, which is fantastic. You know, this is something that I often say is you don't have to be recovered to be a good eating disorder specialist, because as you and I know, like you said, at Montanito, I have hey, sat Karen, with- hold, hold on one minute. I'm so sorry, but now that Bodhi has had this attention, he's over here. <laughs> So hold on just for one second, okay? This is probably the best first podcast ever. We are real, folks. We are real. Hold on. I'm going to move him out of the frame. Okay. Come here. We're, we're in the process, everybody, of moving Bodhi to another part of the house. So I'm going to keep talking because Carolyn will come back. And as those of you who know her, she can talk quite a bit. What I was saying, though, is that you don't need to be recovered to be an amazing therapist. I have sat with so many clinicians who have never had an eating disorder and they are fantastic. There is something a little bit different though when you've, she's <laughs> back, she's back everyone. So I was just saying that there's something different sitting with somebody who's recovered. Part of it I think is also there's a language. And the reason why I say that is there's a story that I want to tell you. And I don't even know if I've ever told you this about the first time I ever met you. And I think I've told you this story. It was probably 20 years ago at an IADEP conference. We're doing a lot of shout outs to IADEP. And you were giving a talk. I was a graduate student. I'd never met you in my life. I was I was, I didn't, I don't even know if I knew who you were, but I'm embarrassed to say this on a podcast. For some reason, I was walking around this IADEP conference, clutching a narrative that I had written about my own eating disorder experience. And I was holding on to it. I don't know. I had no idea who I wanted to give it to. I don't, I mean, I never ended up giving it to anyone, but I went into your talk. I had never even heard your name, Carolyn. I'm standing in the back of the room and all of a sudden tears are streaming down my face because no one had put words to what my suffering was like when I was in my eating disorder until I met you. That's one of the beautiful things about working with a recovered professional. Mm, yeah. You to yeah. this day, I remember where I was standing. I remember where you were standing and it's talking about the fact that it was the first time I understood that it wasn't about the food, that it was about the food, you know, all the chapters in your book, the eight keys yeah. to recovery from an eating disorder. It was the first time anyone ever, ever explained to me that like my soul was hurting when I was in my eating disorder. I didn't feel like I fit in. I had maturity fears, intimacy fears, soul, fe like all these fears. And you were the first person to put voice to it. And I think that's part of working with a recovered clinician. And that's the first time I met you. So I actually just wow. want to say thank you. Wow. Yeah. Well, that yeah. sounds like you crying in the back of the room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the reality of it was I, people say to me, you were so brave to stand up and start talking about it. You know, the whole self-disclosure piece yep. that we're taught not to do and, and telling people you had an eating disorder and all that. 
um, and that recovered instead of recovering. And and people say, oh, you had so much courage, you were so brave. But but I always say, you know, I was just telling the truth. I was just standing up and telling the truth the best I knew it. I thought it was right. I wanted to say, I don't have any special gift that made me be recovered. So if I can do it, so can you. And I felt like it would be very weird to hold that back from people. If I saw someone and they had an eating disorder to, to not say I had that too, would be weird to me. It would be voyeuristic. It would be like, let's say someone got struck by lightning and you happen to be a therapist and you see them and you don't tell them you got hit by lightning too. (laughs) You know, it just seems weird. Yeah. So I think that um, there's this idea about people being worried that, but what if you relapse and then that's going to throw off your, your patients or your clients or whatever. But we have people in the field, all kinds of fields, not just therapy, but um, what if you're a therapist who got a divorce? Does that mean that you can't help anybody through marital issues or Absolutely. What if you had depression depression once when you were a therapist? Does that mean you can't help anybody who is ever depressed? Or it just seems so weird to me that we were holding these standards that were so much higher for people with eating disorders, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It is true. And also people, or at least my experience from myself and with my clients carry so much shame, even saying I have an eating disorder. So how would it be if we're not disclosing? Are we then actually giving into that shame or whatever the word is? Forgive me for not realizing what the word is, but are we enabling them to stay in that shame by just sitting there and being like, "Mm -hmm, okay, I I see. Yep. That, That is what I think. I, when people say, you know, you shouldn't talk about it and all this. I say, why are you ashamed by it? Because if so, then how do you treat people with yeah. it if you feel ashamed by it? Yeah. So, yeah. And you know, I've been saying that stuff. And you know, I don't know if you remember the time that we were at a conference. I don't know if you remember this or not. And there was somebody there who was trying to get recovered people to to sign up on some kind of petition or something. And and they said to me, nobody is signing up. And I and I was like this, oh, okay, hey, you, you know, come over <laughs> here. Because I knew who they are, were, yeah. all were, because they were all telling me. But, you know, it's now, it, it's different now. It's it's like when you uh, uh, moved to Boston and, and we're nervous about it because it was a little bit different in Boston. Yeah. I think it's more accepted now. And And by the way, I still think there are some concerns. For example... I have written a lot now. I train the coaches and I've trained for a long time, trained uh, therapists, how to use your recovered status in the appropriate way. Like you don't talk about how sick you were or how much weight you lost or how many laxatives you took or, or how many miles you ran or any of that. Right. Because that's inappropriate. You talk about the things you did to get better or how you hung through the hard times yeah. or the body image things that you did that were positive. And you don't bring up your own laxative abuse if somebody you're seeing with anorexia nervosa that isn't even using laxatives. Right. So there are all kinds of, I have a whole set of guidelines now for people who are recovered. And that's why in the coaching um, course, there's two tracks. There's a track for people who are recovered and a track for people who aren't recovered. Because I think if you are recovered, it's important that somebody helps train you how to use that in the best light. I 
absolutely, absolutely agree. So that's an interesting question, though, and a question that's very provocative to ask a recovered clinician. Have you ever been triggered from doing the work? I haven't been triggered from doing the work, but I did get triggered once when I thought I was recovered. It was way. It was when I was still a teacher. I was a high school teacher, and I thought I was recovered. And I don't know if I would have used the word recovered then, but I thought, well, I'm over this. And uh, the golden cage came out. So this shows you how long ago this was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was <laughs> a long time Sorry ago. Sorry for laughing. <laughs> was in the 1970s or something early. Anyway, and I read that book and it threw me off. Yeah. And um, I hadn't, it hadn't been two years since I felt like I was well which is part of the reason why I have this two-year rule now. Um, but I remember feeling like, oh, my God, I thought I had anorexia. I was such a bad anorexic. I didn't, I was, look at all the, these girls lost so much more weight and had so much more control and self-discipline than I did. And I got triggered for about two weeks. And it's part of the reason why, and, and then I pulled my act together and have never had that happen since. But it's part of the reason why I say I think people need to have two years where they identify as recovered. Yep. Recovered. If you, and then I have, you know, my definition of what that is. But if you identify yourself as recovered for two years, then I think you can step into being in a position to help others. Because if you hold that status for two years, through that time, definitely something has happened. Definitely you've had a car crash or broken up with a boyfriend or got a bad grade or your mother or your dog died or something. You, you need to be able to go through the, the knocks that happen in life and know that you don't fall back to that as your um, default mode. And when you do that, if you've gone through a couple of years of that, and, and, and actually, I think it's worked out. I mean, at Montanito, I can only remember one time when a, a staff member relapsed. I can only remember one time. Now, people say to me, well, maybe they did and you didn't know it, and maybe that's true, but yeah. I was pretty darn close with the staff members, and I made it pretty clear they could come and tell me, and this person who relapsed, we got her into treatment, and when she came back, she, was in, she came back to a position that was not direct interacting with clients. Yeah. So I, I really believe that that two-year rule makes some sense. I absolutely agree. Let me ask you then. So here you are, you're saying, you know, as we both are saying fully recovered, which I'm very, very, very proud to say. In fact, I don't ever take my recovery for granted. But how do you navigate through issues then? Like, what do you do? So as we talked about, life still happens, breakups, car accidents, things like that. How do you handle those underlying issues when they come up? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have two things to say about that. The first one is about your traits, taking your traits from the darkness to the light, right? Yep. So the first one is I came to realize, and you know this, uh, Karen, you know, watching the researchers saying, uh, just for me, for example, people with anorexia nervosa are perfectionistic or obsessive compulsive or these things. And me looking at that and saying, well, I like to think of myself more as tenacious or driven, right? 
So what I learned to do is realize I'm not going to get rid of those genetic traits. And this is where I think the genetic thing is important to know, but we just can't make it be the end-all be-all. We have our genetic traits, and then there's epigenetics, the things that shape our traits or that how our traits manifest themselves. So, uh, for example, I wrote something recently about this COVID-19 thing and how People like right now, my my traits of being <laughs> I read that a little bit anxious and a little bit perfectionistic. I'm the one, the first one of all my friends, and the main one in my household to be. We got mask, we got gloves, we got sanitizer. We're going out with a hat, with glasses. You know, I wouldn't let Bruce out of the house without it. And I looked at him and said, uh, Bruce, my husband said. Honey, this is where my traits come in so handy. Right. So I think that you learn how to use your traits in the way that is for the highest good rather than trying to get rid of it. Because I remember when people, you know, would say to me, you know, don't be this way or that way. I was like, that that is kind of the way I am. It's where I channel it that that makes the difference. The other thing I would say about what I do is is a lot in the eight keys. For example, there's a chapter in there about uh, feel your feelings but challenge your thoughts. You know, I used to think I was my thoughts and feelings, and it's all the soul work that helped me step back and realize that that I am the wise presence. Yes. Underneath all this that has thoughts and feelings that come and go, and I don't have to react to all of them. If I can take a step back and watch them and learn how to respond rather than react, that's hugely helpful for me. Um, Another thing, a big thing, like um, key seven, you have to reach out, out to people. So, and, and you know me, I'm a crier like you. When (laughs) something happens, uh, you know, I'm reaching out to people and I, and I cry and I, you know, I cried in staff meetings and new, yep. new therapists would go like, oh my God, you're <laughs> crying until they realized that I would feel my feelings and then, and then you can move past it. You don't deny your feelings. You go ahead and feel it, but then you go to the next step. You, you can move beyond that by grabbing onto a friend, even if it's just, I need you to go for a walk with me. I need you to talk me through this. I need to share this moment with you. Yeah. Grabbing onto a friend as opposed to grabbing onto the eating disorder. Yeah, that's right. There it is, right? right. And now I don't think of it as opposed to grabbing on the eating disorder because I never have a thought of using the eating disorder, but certainly it's my tool now. I have, it's, it's a resource now. So interestingly enough, all, every single thing in the eight keys book, I, brought into Montanito and I realized those are things that I use to help myself get better you know like like what you were saying earlier this thing about you know it's not about the food and for a long time therapists when we look back at the field of eating disorders were putting people on the couch you know and doing psychoanalysis trying to help them with the eating disorder meanwhile the person would go home and binge and purge right and when I started treating eating disorders, I started asking things like, you know, you know, my favorite slide, you know, enough about your mother. What did you have to eat today? Yes. <laughs> because you got to get in the trenches. You got to yeah. deal with the specific stuff. It, it, so it's, 
It's not about the food and it is it's about, about the food. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. These are, these are the, the, the gifts that I have taken from you. Like all of these things, which by the way, you live your life by, I live my life by this. Like I, okay. I, you know, I am the same person that I am in the therapy office as I am with my friends. Uh, you know, when I used to run, when I used to be the clinical director at Montanito, I was the same when I was in the office with the staff as when I walked out on the floor. Being true to who you are, yeah. these are the things that you talk about in the eight keys that are the way to live your life. The way, to st- the way I've stayed recovered is by paying attention. Right? Yeah, paying well, attention. You know, People, well, first of all, that's that's one of the reasons I kept saying, when are you going to work for me? Because of <laughs> your authenticity, right? Thank and you. One of the things that I used to say to, one of my favorite things that I used to say to therapists was, and this is going to sound bad at first, but I think you know, I used to say, stop acting like a therapist because someone who would be out in their life or in the milieu or whatever, yeah. and then come in and sit in the chair like they put a therapist hat on well, how do you feel about that? You know, right. You, you, you have to carry that stance with you, that stance. If you're trying to teach it to somebody, you kind of have to live it. Yeah. The highest compliment I ever got. And and I feel like this is a little bit like tooting my own horn. I had a new client come into my office where, where my office is in downtown Boston. And she said, Oh, the reason how I found you is my friend also sees a therapist in this office. And she said she would see, she's like, I don't know who this woman is, but she walks through the through the lobby area and she's just got this essence about her. Like, I just want to sit and talk to her. And she's like, that's why I reached out to you. And I thought- Yeah, person first, therapist right? second. Yeah. Right? Just this yeah. way you walk through the world, which I don't know about you, but I didn't walk through the world that way when I was in my eating disorder. The irony is I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be that person that walked through the world with confidence and silliness and and vulnerability and all that, but I could not have been farther away from that person when I was in my eating disorder. As a fully recovered person, I've actually achieved where I wanted to be in life. And you know, don't you feel like, you know, people say to me, how do you know you're not going to relapse? And the thing is, I don't know how many years have to go by before right. people accept it. I don't think we can ever truly answer that question, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, we, we, it's like uh, I remember saying to somebody, how do I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow? You know? Right, right. I, mean, I know that I'm not going to relapse as much as I know that. But I think I think that... Um, it, sometimes I think people think it makes me sound arrogant and all that, or I think I'm better than other therapists. And and I think there is a way that we have to be very open to people, especially people in the field who do relapse. They need to be cared for and understood. They need a of place course. to go and get help. Um, and, and, and sometimes people think, oh, the way you hold it up, it's like if somebody relapses, then there's all this shame. No, I don't think there's nope. shame. I think that it means something was not being attended to, something wasn't really resolved or worked on or something, but I don't I don't feel like that means that 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 it's shameful. Yeah. And I but I do think there comes a time when you're recovered where you're not dealing with it one day at a time either, you know? 
Yep. And I think there's enough of us out there who can talk about that. Yep. And the the example that I always use for for my for for being fully 100% recovered is um and this is also the reason one of the reasons for the podcast. So so many clients have sat on my couch and said I thought life was supposed to be perfect as a recovered person, uh-huh. or everybody yeah. said, as soon as I recover, everything is going to be great. And I say, I'm sorry, they weren't being honest with you because that's not yeah. life. Yeah. Life is real. It's how you get through it. So the example that I use all the time, and as you know, this 14 years ago, my father passed away from brain cancer. Hardest thing I ever went through. Hardest thing also the most amazing thing I ever went through. I sat by my father's bedside for three months. My brothers were there. My mother was there. Friends, family were there. There was not an eating disorder behavior in the world that was going to stop my father from dying, right? When I was in my eating disorder, I abused laxatives. There weren't enough laxatives, Carolyn, that were going to stop my father from dying. There wasn't any amount of perfect meal, the perfect food that was going to stop him from dying. But because I was present, I got to be in the process of my father dying. I got to hold his hand. I got to wipe his tears when he got sad. My favorite story is that because of where the tumor was, my father had aphasia. So he knew what he wanted to say, but he couldn't get the words out. And because he couldn't speak, he used to blow kisses across the room to my mother to say, I love you. They were married for 43 and a half years and he couldn't say it anymore. So he blew kisses to her and she would blow them back. Can you imagine if I missed that? Because I was out searching for the perfect salad with no dressing and no fats and no proteins and whatnot. And my parents were expressing the ultimate vulnerability of love and that's life. Life still happens but I got to experience when it was happening and grieve appropriately because I was with my family and not in my eating disorder mind. When people get better and the symptoms are at bay, I often say, and I don't know if you can put this on your podcast, uh, <laughs> you might have to censor it, but I, I, it's, it's, it's sort of like the, oh shit, now what? Yeah. Because there's a little bit of them sometimes that feels like, um, God, I thought things were going to be all better when yeah. it's like, no, now you deal with life on life's terms. Yeah. Now you deal with life without using that coping mechanism. Now you deal with life with the full ups and downs of it. Exactly. Taking it in, feeling it. You just don't rely on the eating disorder behaviors to help you through it. But there are a lot of other, like we already talked about, you know, ways that you go through it and you deal with it as an authentic feeling self. But, but, but everything isn't rosy, but if you don't get over it, then you have the bad stuff that happens and your eating disorder, you know? Absolutely. That's what I say to clients all the time. So now you have a problem and you just put another problem on top of it because you just engaged in your eating disorder. So it's really about sitting through it. It's, it is really sitting through it, being curious about what you're experiencing, and then moving through it. You know, I often say there's actually no emotion that you're not supposed to feel. Right. People are like, I don't want to feel anger. 
I want you to feel anger because yeah, whatever you some, feel, you feel. Yeah. Somebody may have done you an injustice and you need to do something about that. I don't want to feel fear. You know what? You better feel fear because you might be in harm's way and you need to do something about that. So, and you also get to feel joy and love and laughter and experience. You, you can't, I also say to clients all the time, you can't just turn off the bad feelings but keep the good feelings, you right. turn them all off. Right. That's the, you know, responding versus reacting to yes. the feelings. And that's why I'm so into the whole mindfulness stuff that I do also, that in the beginning, you know, I think people thought I was this woo-woo California weirdo therapist. But <laughs> now, now I'm being vindicated because, you know, there's all kinds of studies about mindfulness practice and how it calms the amygdala and how people, particularly with anorexia, have hyperactive amygdalas or how uh, the yoga and eating disorders and how yoga practice can help someone sit with themselves and sit in their body and accept where they are. And there's right. all kinds of things that are showing that to be, those to be very incredibly useful tools rather than I think what people kind of saw them, especially when we put them in the treatment centers, like yoga or meditation is like placeholders. So we need something to do for an hour. Right. No, I think it's just as important as the other work. It's yes. very, those things are very important in helping us deal with the things that come across our, our, our paths. Yes. You know? Let me ask you, do you think now here we're having this whole conversation about, you know, being recovered and recovery. Do you think Anyone, regardless of how long they've had their eating disorder, the severity of it, could anybody eventually be a guest on this podcast? Could any, do you think anybody, or is that the right way of saying, is everybody able to recover? Well, let me put it to you this way. I, every single person who walks through my door or who comes in contact with me, I start off with the absolute position that if I could do it, you could do it. So I start off there. The thing that I don't, because I've known people who have had it for multiple years and got better, right? You've yep. known people like that too. I, I, someone who had their eating disorder for 50 years. Yep. I had a 74-year-old client. You know, I've had people who other people would say they're not going to get better. So I don't, there's nothing that comes across uh, my path that I would say, oh, this person can't get better. However, that doesn't mean everybody is going to get better. Yep. And part of the reason is I don't want to sound like I don't understand that not everybody has the resources, you know, to get the treatment they need or to, or to get a therapist or pay for a therapist or whatever. Um, on the other hand, there's another part of that too, which is I didn't have a therapist and, and I got better. So uh, you know, back at the time when I had it, I, there weren't therapists who were treating it and people didn't even know what it was. So, um, I'm not saying you can't get better if you don't have a therapist either, but I'm just saying, I do like to appreciate the fact that some people are, may, may be suffering more, may have a more severe case, may need to have resources they don't have access to. Right. So I do like to acknowledge that. On the other hand, I am completely open no matter what situation you come to me in, no matter how bad you are, how many years you've had it, 
what damage you've done, I take everybody on with the idea that, look, you can get there. You absolutely can get there. And I don't like to think of it any other way. But I'm not silly enough to know, you know, I've treated people who never got better. I've yep. treated people who later have died. So yep. I, I'm not foolish enough to say that everyone will. Right. I think that goes to something you had said at the very beginning, and I kind of want to go back to it. You talked about, you, and you didn't say what it was, but I'm going to ask you. You talked about your, you, what you define as being recovered. What is your definition of being recovered? Because I think when you talk about your definition about it, anybody can. Anybody does have the ability, not saying it's easy, just like you said, not saying they have access to everything, but everybody can do it. So how do you define recovery? Oh, God. Okay. Well, that's why I wrote it down. It's in my book. Uh, but basically, it's when you put food and weight and shape in its proper perspective, and you no longer do anything to... Um, let me see if I can... If I, can I don't think I can recite it, but... It's where all those things take a proper perspective in your life. And the main one is that you're not willing to compromise your health or betray your soul to wear a certain size or reach a certain number on the scale. That, that numbers and weight and all that take their proper perspective. And in fact, they, they no longer have much meaning anymore. And you accept your natural body size and shape. And you no longer turn to to food or your relationship with food or exercise to cope with, deal, deal with, or distract from problems. Mm -hmm. that, that's really the, the crux of it right there. So it doesn't mention a, a number on the scale or anything like that. It really involves you change your whole relationship to these ideas of eating and weight and food and shape, and you accept what your body does naturally when you're taking care of yourself in that way. And you're not, you're not using numbers, you know, you're not counting calories or miles run or anything like that. But I really like my favorite part of it is that you won't um, compromise your health or betray your soul. That's it's, my favorite part of my definition. <laughs> it's beautiful. And by the way, that is what I was doing when I was in my eating disorder. I was betraying my soul. Yeah. It's, it's, it is so unbelievable. And, and I think that unfortunately, or fortunately, it, it takes to be recovered. It takes to be so far away, so far removed, or at least my experience was, to really look back and realize, I was betraying my soul. I was betraying my physical body. I was betraying my heart, like all these things. Yeah, I think that sometimes people don't even have, but then I think some people, um, if you don't know what soul is, then how yeah. do you know if you're betraying it or not? So I think people, it's why I use that concept. It's why the eighth key. Is, is having a bigger bigger meaning and purpose that uh, the connection we have to the larger world and all that. I think that um, sometimes we forget in this culture, not just people with eating disorders, but this culture forgets where, what are we paying attention to? The latest iPhone or uh, device, you know, or, or um, our connections to people. 
are we paying attention to the size of our thighs or the fact that they're strong and can hike us yeah. up a mountain? There's all kinds of things that, that's why I like mindfulness and that's why I like doing exercises like beginner's mind to help people understand that they're more than just their ego. And, you know, by ego, I mean personality, like I'm Carolyn and I wrote these books and I'm an eating disorder therapist and this and that. Um, but that other underlying essence underneath that isn't identified with I am this or I am that. It's, right. just, it's just I am. It's just the being part of human beings. And I think people don't have a way to, um, to understand that or learn about that or have mentoring about that. And that's why I included in my treatment not because I think it's cute or fun or makes me a cool therapist, but because I think it actually is healing. Yeah. I also think that, and again, I always use my own experience. I was taught or the messages I thought I was receiving is that who I am is not, is not acceptable. I was very emotional. I was a very loud kid. I, I actually really loved life. I loved singing. I loved all of this. And I was always told you're too much. Yeah. It's too much. Shh, be quiet. And by the way, not even by family members. I think it was just sort of a societal message. Yeah. And once you, again, tap into, wait a minute, that's who I am. That's who makes me me. That's the person who I was referring to that walks through the lobby of my, you know, of my office, that yeah. essence yeah. that once you embrace that, which for me is the ultimate healing. It's also the ultimate beauty of life. Just dropping into that, you would never sacrifice that for an eating disorder. And and what's I think important about that is I think people started identifying with me and started thinking they had to be like me and um and that's what's what recovered was and it's uh, not at all. It's, it's being for, your authentic you and yeah. if that's very quiet and that's very shy and you don't like to go out with your friends and go out on the weekend and party, you like to stay home and read then embracing that. And that I think is really important because I think people started to identify with, oh, I'll never be like you. One of the best compliments I ever got when I got that Project Heal Award. Right. Um, fear, what was that? Fearlessly Authentic? What yes. a great award, right? That, 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 that goes down in my life as a, as a highlight in my life. But uh, there was a video of a bunch of people talking about me. And one of the things a former client said was, she used to think she wanted to be like me. And then she realized what I really taught her is how to be her own best self. And I think we have to be careful when we talk about traits and being recovered and all that. There's people who are very, I'm more like you, but there's people who are very different than us. Mm -hmm. And then owning that, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because like, as you were talking about that award that you got from Project Heal, which is, I, I love them so much. I asked this question um, because you and I had talked earlier about what we were going to talk about. And I want to know, and I know it's a funny question, but how do you benefit the world? How do we benefit from you? I want to know that. You know, gosh, that's so interesting because only now, 
at 65 years old, can I actually even look at that? Well, first of all, it makes me want to cry. Maybe I will cry a little. Of course you will. Uh, That's why I love you. <laughs> I mean, okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, take your time. For those of you who can't see, we've got these beautiful tears. <laughs> you know, uh, I think... Um, I think standing up for things like, you know, and I'm not going to call it brave because I already said earlier uh, in this talk that it, it's not so much brave, but it's telling the truth and doing what you think is right. So I think, for example, standing up at that first conference and, and, and saying that I was recovered, I think opening the first residential treatment center I think embracing and hiring uh, recovered staff. I And when I opened the first residential treatment center, you don't even know how many people told me not to do it, that it needed to be a hospital, that eating disorders had to be treated in a hospital, and, uh, and that I wasn't a doctor and all this stuff. Um, or people who said things about when I stood up about being recovered. And, um, and I think now with the coaches, I think I what I have done, and this is just looking back now, and, and people tell me this now, I've given so many other people permission to do the same. Yep. So many other people. You know, sometimes you're the first one, and it gives somebody else permission, oh, I'm going to do that. Maybe I'm going to open a residential. I'm going to talk about being recovered now. I'm going to write a book about being recovered I'm going to, and maybe there's people, I know there's people that are going to start training coaches. I'm not going to be the only one. I think I, I think in some ways I've given permission uh, to many people to, to come out and go down this path that I think in the end is beneficial. That's yeah. what I think. You know what you did for me is that you actually taught me that I was recovered. Does that make yeah, sense? That's true. That's I, true. Because a lot of people came to me using the word recovering. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't yeah. even know that I was a fully recovered person until I met you. And that I think, I really do think changed my life. It changed the concept of who I, who I am in the sense of, I, 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 I am going to be okay. I, not, that's not right. Let me take it back. How, it's about, not that, how about this? Because this is what other people tell me. That they finally realized that they could act and believe and say and whatever, that it was gone. That they yeah. didn't have to use this language that yeah. had been adopted from the 12 step. Because when, pe when we first started treating eating disorders... We, it looked like a duck. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck. So people were saying, oh, they're doing all these behaviors. And there's an addictive quality, especially in bulimia. And so people were applying the 12-step program because, because we didn't know what else to do. People were doing right. it. And I think it gives permission to go, oh, yeah, it is gone. I don't have to say that it's always with me and I have to be on guard and I have to manage it one day at a yep. time. So maybe that's the language that works yeah. for you. And I don't think I could do this work if I didn't know that people could be fully recovered because I think partially recovered sucks. So do it's I. Like, it's like being in purgatory. 
I know. Every day of your life. Well, this is why you have to, this is what I think recovered people are really good for in the field. Yeah. I think they're really good for saying to people, you're, when your symptoms are gone, but you're, so you're not binging and purging, but you still hate your body. Or you've gained weight, anorexia nervosa, but you still have to follow this strict meal plan. You can only eat certain things and you can't go out with other people, but your weight's restored. Then they, people think, and insurance companies kind of promote this. Absolutely. Oh yeah, you don't, we're not paying for treatment anymore. They feel like that's recovered. And we have to tell people that's not recovered. When you're still struggling and white knuckling it and hate your body and are one day at a time going through your behaviors, there's way more for you to do. And it's not going to feel like that. I don't yeah. struggle one day at a time. Yeah. I don't have to keep my behaviors at bay. I don't yeah. have to check in in a meeting to make sure that I'm not going to uh, have a behavior. And I think we need to tell people that. And I think recovered people are really good at being able to tell people, you're not done yet. That's not it. And if that was it, I wouldn't trade where, where I was for that because that doesn't right. feel good. Then you're oh. in a no man's land. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible place to be. Uh, Carolyn, I could talk to you for hours. I swear you and I could do this for, for, oh, I know. for another I two know. hours. But in, in the best interest of the listeners, I am going to start bringing this to a close. Okay, um, I don't even know what time it is, but you it, you, we, we, you keep us in control. I got it. I got us. All right. So um, we're going to end in a minute, but I do want to say again, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel I am the clinician I am today because having trained under you. I feel I'm the recovered person I am today because having met you and telling me that I'm fully recovered. I feel like since working with you, I've been given permission to be myself as a clinician. And that was an enormous gift to me. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you, every, every ounce you've played in my life. And I feel very fortunate that I know you and Bodhi and of course, Bruce. So, well, as you know, it's so lovely to be appreciated. So I would say namaste. Namaste. Both ways. Yeah. Know? Thank you. Thank you. So we do always like to end the podcast, or I say always as if this is my, my 20th podcast and you're my first one. We're starting a tradition by ending the podcast. We're going to start a tradition. Um, so I'd like to ask a question absolutely nothing to do with an eating disorder nothing to do with recovery just to sort of end in a in a in a note that's oh cool fun. yeah okay. yeah so if you were going to live in a different time but in the same place you are now what time period would that be oh in the same place like the same yeah. country yeah you know what i want you to answer it any way you heard it doesn't matter Well, the reason I said that, because I had two different thoughts. I mean, you're going to laugh at this, but I have always thought that I had a, <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> I have always thought that I had a past life in Japan as a geisha. 
I knew you were going to say that. As soon as you said Japan, I'm like, here it comes. <sighs> I know. Isn't well, that a <laughs> don't we always like to think our past lives? Of course, I wasn't the poor peasant, you know, out picking the fields. I was the geisha, you know. I, I like love it. But in this country, in this place, it probably would have been, uh, well, right where I am right now, it probably would have been with the Chumash Indians. I, I yeah. have, a, as you know, I have a big respect for tribal cultures and, and what they did with the elders and how they used to sit with talking circles and how they had spirit animals and how they lived with the land and respect even for the animals that they killed and eat and how they would bless them beforehand. I have a, a, a huge amount of respect for what we have lost in terms of being close to nature. So if it were, be, if it were to be around here, um, I know those Indians lived here and it, it would probably be that. So there I you go. It. Geisha, American <laughs> Indian. <laughs> I expect nothing less from you. Nothing less. <laughs> so before we actually fully end, Carolyn, can you tell people how they can look up the Carolyn Costin Institute if they want to get on your website, books, things like that? How can people get in touch with you? I mean, really, I made it so easy because my website is carolyncostin.com. Yep. And, 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 or you can type in the Carolyn Costin Institute and that flashes up to if you're particularly interested in, in, the, in the coaching aspect, once you go on the Institute, there's little buttons. There's a continuing education part where I, I'm also doing online training for, for therapists. And, um, but there's that, and then, or you can go into the, the, there's a little button for coaching. So that's right. probably the best way. And the books are on the site too and all that. And um, yeah, that's probably the best way. Fantastic. Again, Carolyn, Thank you so, so much. It was wonderful having you on the first show. Thank you wow. again. First yep. show. There it is. First I one. Remember what I said. I'll do your first show, but you have to have me back once you get famous. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely will. Thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening. I look forward to seeing yeah, you on our you. next episode. Okay. Thanks everyone. Take All care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.